0: I think it's
1: really good. As you were saying it, I, I thought of something that I wish I would have said initially. And um, you're talking about your, the clinical work that you do. And, um, you know, I'm I'm very much a, a Lacanian in the, the clinical work that I do, but I, I would not call myself a pure Lacanian, right? I don't think mm-hmm. the Lacan is the only person who has anything good to say about therapeutic work. And one of the people who I um, think about a lot in the political work that I do and the clinical work that I do is Melanie Klein. Oh, yeah. You know, and the way that that um, this is what I think coming back to this, what makes it a tough sell thing, right? It seems to me that most people are in what, you know, Klein would call a paranoid schizoid position Mm -hmm. where they want to view things as all good or all bad. And the things that they view as all bad, a lot of times they're viewing them that way so that they can preserve the goodness of another thing. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so just to kind of like make something up off the top of my head, I'll hear people a lot of times talk about how unions are bad you know, because that allows for them to continue to see their own job that is not a union job um, as all good, right? If the union is inefficient and ineffective and encourages people to be lazy and just helps people not do a good job and continue to not be fired, then that means that I can continue going to work in in these conditions that are actually not good and I don't enjoy, but I can say at least it's not that you know, Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, and that's something that I I see happening in in other areas too. Right. Like, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm in Chicago, right. And one of the things that will happen here as I've I've worked with um, people of color from the the West side of Chicago and the South side Mm -hmm. of Chicago. So, um, people in those areas, those are some of the most economically disadvantaged areas in Chicago. Um, but my experience has shown me that people from the West side, will have more beef with people from the South Side who are contained in the same sort of conditions that they are, dealing with the same sort of police brutality and lack of jobs and um, just all the other things, right? They have that in common, but they dislike those people more than they dislike the police, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And it's almost as like if the people from the South or the West Side are all bad, that means, you know, me and, and mine, we're all good because we're not them. Um, Yeah, you know, and so I I see a lot of that kind of stuff happening. And when you encourage people to abandon that worldview, right, which makes things nice and convenient and easy for you and to adopt, you know, the depressive position, which is to see that all people, all institutions, all political ideologies, um, all of our our heroes and ghosts and villains that we encounter are, of course, whole, right, which means that they have things Mm -hmm. that are good, they have things about them that are bad. Um, and that it is tempting to kind of uh, take either the best or the worst thing about a person, right? Um, like a figure like Lennon is a great example of this. I think you can do this oh, with yeah, him yeah, yeah. really easily, right? You can either valorize him or you can villainize him, depending on your perspectives. Um, and it, it, if you do that, you you disavow all these other aspects of this person, mm-hmm. all these other aspects of this Political ideology, all these other aspects of this profession, this institution, whatever, um, uh, because it's harder. It's actually a lot harder to look at people, at, or institutions, or things as wholes, because then you see them and you see all of their numerous flaws, right? It's it is a unidealistic, you know, i.e., pessimistic, you could say, way of looking at the world. Um, one of the ways when I teach it that I've, I've had a little bit of success with um, is I've I've said. Um, I, I do like a, a weird switcheroo thing. I talk about the paranoid schizoid position, and then I describe some the, the depressive position, but I don't call it that. I call uh-huh. it the, I call it the poetic position, <laughs> you know. And, and students are like, "Oh, that's deep. That's good. I like that." <laughs> and I'm like, "Actually, she doesn't call it that. <laughs> she calls it the depressive position yeah. because you know, in her mind, you know, looking at things in in this poetic way." it's kind of sad, right? It's, it's a, it's a bit of a, you, you look at yourself and the people who matter to you and you're like, you know, the, there's flaws here We're we're limited. Um, we're castrated, you know, to, to use a Lacanian concept here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, despite the fact that we can all work really hard to make, you know, a more just world, to make a more peaceful world, to make a world where, where people don't suffer, there's still going to be suffering. There's still going to be injustice. There's still going to be all these things, you know, um, uh, Derrida comes to mind as somebody who's useful for me here too, um, in, in the way that he kind of describes that even though we're never going to achieve, you know, um, justice with a capital J, that's exactly the reason why we should try to. You know, mm. the the fact that we will try and fail is the reason to keep trying. Um, if you only try things if you are guaranteed success, like nothing is going to happen um, ultimately. And I, I think that that's, that's that dialectical pessimism coming out. And I don't know, like, I think if I can engage people in conversations about it, sometimes, you know, they'll be willing to hear me out. They'll be willing to consider it. They'll be like, okay, what you're saying isn't what I thought you were going to say. And I'm a little bit more interested now. Um, But it's really hard to get people to uh, consider this if you're only talking to them in like short bursts, right? Like when you you can't do it like on Twitter or something like that. Or at least I can't. Um, I mean, it's an interesting thing
0: to to just indicate that too, is that having the conversations around this whole position necessitates time it necessitates space to be able to do it. It's one of the reasons why I think, you know, in a bit, maybe in a bit of an unconscious way, at least on, you know, Red Library, the podcast that, that we do, that we, we have very long form types of discussions. And I think that in some ways it, it's sort of a a weird, hopefully, somewhat subversive kind of approach to, yeah. to say that, you know, the, as to the degree that capital and and technology and communication technologies further and further compress and condense the time that we experience in our lives. In some ways we have to wage some kind of like revolutionary pessimistic struggle around the experience of time itself. And maybe part of that is to say, listen, instead of having only 20 minutes to hear this particular idea, it's going to take you two and a half hours split up over the course of two weeks. And you're going to have to really listen and really think about it and have this moment of reflection that comes in the midst of it. Uh, to me, I think that in some way, it's, it's, a, it's, it's trying to push back on the way that capital and the relations of capitalism and the speed of our everyday life to you know, talk about that component of it like really does limit us being able to whatever potential we would have to maybe engage with that dialectical pessimism if you don't have time to do it or if the only way you encounter it is like a short burst of a sentence or two on twitter in 140 characters it's not going to be sufficient enough to counteract that injunction to enjoy you know and so, mm-hmm. and i think that the whole thing about twitter is so like symptomatic of this whole problem. Because, you know, the way that Twitter is designed is it's designed as if it's like a slot machine, you mm-hmm. get this gratification by this scrolling action that's happening all the time. And and that's sort of the level at which we have to try to, you know, in some sort of kind of metaphorical Luddite kind of sense, like throw throw wrenches into the gears and to say, no, it's precisely the way that very materially your attention is limited and constrained in these ways that we have to push back on that. Because, you know, if there is some sort of, utopian kind of impulse at the end of the, or, you know, in the midst of the dialectical pessimist sort of impulse, which I think there is it's, I don't really know how to talk about it yet. I'm a lot of my reading and studying of theory right now personally is oriented towards what, what does it look like to be a utopian and also a dialectical pessimist? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they have to go together. I just, I don't know how that is going to look or sound right now, but I do know that one of the things that you're trying to capture or we're trying to, engage with is how do we how do we stretch time again Mm -hmm. you know how i mean and this is something i've talked about in organizing work you know one of the most the very first labor struggle like one of the very first union struggles was always around the amount of free time you had it was the length of the working day yeah and it's like ask yourself like why is that why was the length of the working day the thing that was the primary like starting point of, of labor struggle the way that as, as we know it, and it's because capital's like first sort of uh, like point of attack was to destroy the, the experience of temporality mm-hmm. and do, and, and I think that, you know, I know this, to me, this doesn't feel abstract. I mean, maybe it sounds very abstract, but, but I think that the way that we engage with each other has to, has to sort of push back on the way that capital has severely restricted the amount of time we even have to engage
1: in a big way. Yeah, I definitely think that there, there's two, three things that come to mind here. Um, uh, one is at a certain point, if this would be really fun to do, if you're you're ever down for it on on your show where you discuss, you know, books that people have read. One of the books that really opened me up, I think, to this point of view was Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed. I don't know if you've read I would,
0: that. I'm already already interested. I love that book. Yes, we should do that. Yes,
1: that would be a lot of fun. Uh, the second thing is: Have you seen? Uh, I I ordered it. Uh, I do and it'll probably show up soonish. Uh, it's a Frederick Jameson book about utopians and utopian impulses from Archaeologies Verso. of the Future. That's the one. That's the one.
0: Yes, I have. Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Have you read yeah, that, actually, Comrade? Yeah, I have. Comrade Commissar Sardana is reading that right now too. So, because we're big Jameson fans and big sci-fi fans too. So.
1: Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I I, yeah. I, I want to read it. It's one of those things where it, talking about time, right? Like that's, the, the, I was saying this earlier before we got started, you know, I just don't have a lot because I, I do a lot of stuff. And <laughs> yeah. when I read that, you know, I want to read it in a way that doesn't suck. And what I mean is I don't want to have to <laughs> like cram it into, yeah. you know, like the 15 minutes I have now because... um I have fifteen minutes. You know what I mean. I want to. I want to have enough time to actually sit and read. And if I need to, to to, to stop reading and think about what I've just read, write down, down some thoughts that I have about what I've just read. Reread. You know, uh, see something again so that I, I know what's. Am I still seeing it that same way? It just yeah. takes a. It takes me a long time to read a book like that. Anything, anything that Jameson writes, I'm going to yeah. have a long time to to ponder.
0: I love and hate him for that reason. I, whenever you were talking about 15 minutes, I'm like, yeah, that's maybe enough to figure out what one paragraph is saying. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, <laughs> depending on the paragraph.
0: <laughs> depending on the paragraph, yeah. 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 But I will say, I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I've always been so drawn to, to Jameson is because of, I, I mean, for many reasons, but that book in particular, I remember finding out that he had written a book about sci-fi and about utopia. And I remember, I don't think I have ever been more excited about a book and in terms of, you know, maybe talk to talk a little bit about like being haunted by the future in some sort of way, I think Jameson has been really influential on my perspective around that. That, you know, encountering different worlds and sci fi and utopias and sci fi is always at the end of the day, not about what could be, but to reframe how you understand the now and like mm-hmm. what are the conditions you find yourself in now. And I think it's a different sort of. You know, way of thinking about the role of utopia, um, and and I think in some ways maybe makes it more dialectically pessimistic. You know mm-hmm. that that it isn't like utopia ever with the idea of giving you some concrete idea of what will be, uh, but maybe it helps you fr- like engage with that dialectical pessimist sort of almost like depressogenic kind of position more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I think part, you know, it's funny. I love whenever like talking about things and you start working things out. This is why, like, I'm so relational in how I think about organizing and like therapeutic work. Yeah. But, But in some ways, maybe part of what is so terrifying for people to engage with that dialectical pessimistic sort of position is because we have, we've all accepted the idea that utopia is something that only exists in like the early 20th century is this modernist impulse that eventually leads to the Gulag or it leads to Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's one of the things that we've talked about quite a bit with uh, uh, our comrades at the Regrettable Century is that because utopia is so firmly tied to this authoritarian project at its core that we've jettisoned the idea that utopia is something that's worth engaging with and and i think that that's also you you also give up or you also sacrifice the what you need to engage with the sort of dialectical pessimistic sort of position if you don't have that mm-hmm. because there's no counterweight to it it's just it's just the 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 terror of of the conditions that you find yourself in and maybe that's what we're we're trying to recapture in some way is to say you know the the utopian impulse isn't as if you know, what Marx and Engels were critiquing, like you, you know, how many buttons are going to be on the jackets of like the future comrades who are going to live in the utopian society, maybe all we need just to start and to move to find some sort of forward momentum, or some sort of momentum at all is just to say, you know, the utopia just needs to tell us what's wrong, and, and what needs to change with where we're at now. And maybe that's a, a different way. That's the kind of utopia that we need. It's not some idea that it's an actual societal project, and we could predict what that'll be in advance. You know, maybe we just need some way to counteract the the sheer tragedy of the of the terror of looking at the wreckage, and we don't have any way to do that because we've lost utopia.
1: That makes a ton of sense to me. It's it
0: good because I was hoping that didn't come off just like a bunch of rambling nonsense no it doesn't it
1: doesn't to me anyways i i think that that's one of the things though right like it's this that dialectical pessimism again you know you you hear the word utopia and i i'm this is what happens to me anyways like my initial sort of like knee-jerk associations to that are to imagine like this place where everything is wall wall to awesome all the time yeah Uh, but Mm -hmm. then if i if i just kind of like continue to engage for just a little bit longer it, it's like, but wait a minute! How do they do that? And it, it starts to look a lot like Gilead or something, you know. Instead, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and um, that's the thing, right? This is this is that dialectical pessimism at work here. If you just imagine kind of like raw, unchecked optimism, then the idea is you're you're missing something. You're missing what would need to be in place to kind of create that raw and unchecked optimism. Mm -hmm. and it's like wait a second like how how does that get produced like what are the conditions that produce that style of utopia that kind of optimism and it's like maybe they're not so good actually right and so Mm -hmm. um it's weird like i i know um uh, i've had students say say something to me like once uh uh, one student said, uh, to, he's like, can you just let me enjoy something, <laughs> you know, without ruining everything?
0: <laughs> no is my answer. Every time I feel like I I encounter someone and I, I can't even begin to name the amount of times that, you know, I'll be engaging with something or we're watching a film or watching a TV show or just out in public and, you know, something is happening. And, you know, my first kind of impulse, which I do try to check because I do think it can be like more destructive than, um uh like reparative sometimes yeah. is to initially critique. And and sometimes, you know, I try to check that and, and just mm-hmm. realize that I'm not trying to be some sort of like the aggro asshole leftist who just tears everything <laughs> down all the time, you know. Um, but I will say that I think that to some degree, the most revolutionary thing that maybe can be done is to actually deny that injunction to enjoy Mm -hmm. and this is like a very zizek sort of point but i i think this is one of the most uh powerful and and helpful things i've ever gotten from reading and listening to him Mm -hmm. is 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 that that in some way is a really radical act and 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 until you do that i don't think you can start to engage with this dialectical pessimistic sort of position um and so, to me, it feels really necessary to be able to say, "No, I'm not going to let you enjoy this, and I'm not going to enjoy it either." Yeah, but yeah. In doing this, we're going to find something, um, you know, in so, in some ways, like even more enjoyable through the the denial <laughs> of the like the initial enjoyment. Because at the end of the day, right, at, at like the the things that we are experiencing this injunction to enjoy, I think we all know at the end of the day, they're hollow. They're they're mm-hmm. not really satisfying us in any deeply psychological existential way yeah like binge binge watching a bunch of like bullshit things on netflix doesn't ever really satisfy anybody Mm -mm. and and you know going and like consuming a new like sort of commodity or like buying new shit or like going and eating new restaurants i mean i i you know i do this stuff too like everybody and it, it never at the end of the day and maybe this is where lacan is so necessary at the end of the day those things never give you any sort of real satisfaction Um, you know maybe one of the things that is sort of occurring to me is that part of what we're trying to do is to say yeah you know the that whatever whenever we talk about utopia we're not talking about unbounded optimism and we're not talking about a lack of contradiction and this is i think where mcgowan has i think really really hit the hit the nail on the head Mm -hmm. is that you know what we're trying to say is that Maybe part of what we're all trying to do is to get past the the contradiction of capital or whatever that is, whether it's, you know, workers versus capitalists or however you want to think about that now. But in some ways, it's almost as if, you know, I wish I really could experience real genuine contradiction in like relationships in my life. Because but I, but it feels like you can't even do that because you're so fundamentally focused and spending all your time and energy on the contradictions of capital that you never even get to experience some of these other experiences of contradiction and sadness and failure and, you know, loss. And, and mm-hmm. these things to me are just sort of like deeply, like deeply desirable things to have in your life. And maybe that's, you know, that's my dialectical pessimism coming out. But it's almost like I don't even get to experience those because I'm so, Grounded down day to day by the bullshit conditions of capital and work and
1: like yeah. exploration
0: and, and all this other stuff that you never even get a chance to experience those
1: things. Yeah, it was funny that with the the student that I had that experience with, he he knew that I like Star Trek: The Next Generation, I and mean, he was talking about you know they're gonna do Picard it starts I think yeah. in, mm-hmm. in January. He's like, you must be really excited because Picard, like the captain, we need. And I was <laughs> like, but is he? actually because he was kind of <laughs> ideological you know in a way like i mean a little bit yeah it, you know and and uh i mean you can look at it that way i guess but the other way you could look at it is like you know his sort of like blind adherence to the prime directive you know sort mm-hmm. of like disavowed and the, and the, that's he was like can you just let me <laughs> like picard and yeah not have to do the thing well,
0: life. maybe, maybe as a Lacanian point, and I was just listening to an episode of Y Theory talk about this with political, political enjoyment, is the thing that we're wanting and that we're safeguarding? Is it enjoyment? Or is it pleasure? Mm-hmm. You know, are, mm-hmm. are we really actually saying no, don't, don't tamper with my pleasure in, you know, cultural production in commodities and consumption? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's something that, shit, now I'm realizing oh, I'm going to have to think through that and read a bunch of theory books about that now. You know, <laughs> is, is what we're talking about with dialectical pessimism if we're saying, hey, actually, you're going to have to deny yourself pleasure, but what you will have the chance to experience is enjoyment. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a, a question to, to think about more.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the, one of the other things, I, I had a note to, to say something about this from a while back now, but um, uh, a student, another student, sent me something a while ago they were like this will help you out with your like selling pessimism thing that you do (laughs) uh and i was like all right so i took a look at it i'm gonna uh, i'll show it to you here yeah i gotta make it big on this phone hold on a second all right it looks it looks like this i don't know if you can see that but it's (laughs) yeah uh so i'm gonna read this this out loud so that people who can't see because this is a podcast can maybe enjoy it um it's talk
0: about memes on red library all the time so just i i think it's just really amazing to describe in language what a meme (laughs) is like on a podcast i just i love it so much you know there there
1: was a thing i wanted to do once and i I just knew i couldn't do it because i'd get in it i at a certain point i something would be said that would cost me one of my jobs but i wanted to do an entire (laughs) podcast which is just telling jokes and then explaining why they're they're funny and the podcast would be called i don't get it (laughs) I
0: I, listen. I I have an addiction to podcasts. I would totally listen to that shit.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Or memes would work on that too, though. So that memes would be
0: great for that show. Yeah.
1: So what I'm looking at here is a photoshopped picture of the Spice Girls. And each one of them is holding a sign. And so you see one says, if you wanna. The next one says, be my lover, you gotta. And then photoshopped into this is Slavoj Zizek. And his sign says, um, I'm just gonna read the whole thing all together. If you wanna be my lover, you gotta. Um, Be aware that love feels like a great misfortune, a monstrous parasite, a permanent state of emergency that ruins all small pleasures and so on. It is a catastrophe, I claim, a crazy illness. Love ruins your life, but I'm very sad when I'm not in love.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I approve. Mm -hmm. I approve of this message, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it was funny because the student sent that to me and they, I mean... They they meant it as a joke, I think, uh, but I was like, that actually is really good. Yeah. That that mm-hmm. nails it, you know, because yes, like love does do all those things. Love is a possessive, you know, emotion that objectifies mm-hmm. another person or or a thing, and it's like it's mine, and I want it to be my way, and and all these things, and and it 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 idealizes things, and then they fail to live up to the ideals. Like there's a lot of kind of like not so great stuff about love, but when I'm not in love, I'm miserable, you know. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's and that's how i think about about pessimism right like pessimism is something that in many ways kind of like wrecks things that i i enjoy that i find pleasure from that that are pleasant but um if i'm not pessimistic then uh i'm actually very sad right because, yeah mm-hmm. because because maybe i'm gonna steal this from from my theory the lesson is pessimism is the new optimism <laughs>
0: I mean I think that needs to be I mean I would wear a t-shirt with that on it that's all I'll we'll say or definitely like a nice trucker hat. I would definitely wear a trucker hat that had that on it.
1: All right. All right, trucker hat with that on there. That would be really fun to put on like your your business cards as a therapist I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know. Well, you know, it's it's funny about this too because whenever I think about just at the at in the interest of trying to give some sort of credit to this, like what's the evidence for why this is the position to have? Like, what am I basing this on? Mm -hmm. I I have to tell you, I think the two things that stick out most to me are my own personal process and and thinking through and engaging with leftist politics and trying to make sense of all this stuff today. The other thing I would say has to do directly with watching the – The transformational process that occurs in doing therapeutic work. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of I think of a lot of the discussion and a lot of the bigger political discourse, just to return to what we were talking about, is this form of like very liberal like identity politics today. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of it is based on concepts of trauma and violence and the impact that that has on people and one of the things that always sort of disappoints me about it is almost like you know the the real flaw in that approach is it doesn't go far enough like it it sort of adopts the language of trauma and violence without pushing it to its 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 necessary conclusion which is to to work through it mm-hmm. you know it's it's just this sort of dare i say like his, hysterical demand for recognition from the master, right? Mm-hmm. But but to me, whenever I think about the actual therapeutic work around trauma and violence, like what you're pushing into and what you're working through is a very deeply pessimistic and dialectical sort of process. You know, I, I have to tell you the hardest point, I don't know if you ever encountered this with your work, the hardest point is to encounter someone who basically thinks, you know, gets into this, this uh, sort of hypervigilant, uh, cognitive sort of mode of saying, you know, people are either trustworthy or they're untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. The world is either safe or it's not safe. Paranoid schizoid. And, uh, yeah, right. It's exactly that position. And the, the most difficult and tragic moment in the therapeutic process is to say, you know, let's look at where that idea comes from, where those beliefs about the world come from. And then to have to work through that position to say, actually, you know what? Some people are terrible and violent and untrustworthy. And a lot of people aren't. The, and the world isn't inherently an unjust place. It's an, an inherently unfair place. Mm-hmm. And that's a different sort of framework to approach your life with. And 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 I think that whenever you get to that point, you have this dialectically pessimistic sort of position of where you don't have these black and white categories, this paranoid schizoid like sort of position you're, you're much more in the realm of like, like you would describe as what Klein would say, this sort of like depressive position of, and, and in some ways you can't move forward in your life until you reach that point. Mm -hmm. You're constantly just in this sort of repetitious mode of like trying to work out the trauma in all these weird unconscious ways. And so I guess if I was selling it to someone, I would almost just say, "Well, look at your life as it is now. Let me ask you. I mean, on some core level, do you feel that this is the life that you want to be living mm-hmm. And I can tell you as someone who's worked through this process myself, no, it's not you know there's there's a, there's all these effects, these echoes of that trauma of those ghosts that so fundamentally constrain you in your life and and what you can experience that mm-hmm. and I think we know that on some level it's just that the pleasure has become a, 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 a way of self-medicating ourselves to not have to deal with that. And maybe also because the social conditions that we find ourselves in, they don't give us many ways to work through that. And so in the absence of that, why wouldn't you go see the new Avengers film 10 times over? Mm-hmm. You know, Why wouldn't you do that? And this is maybe trying to be dialectical about this yeah, like I, you absolutely should go see the Avengers film 10 times over if that's the only recourse to working through that that you have. Mm-hmm. The question is, how do we find more ways to make it where we can all work through this stuff? Maybe that's the question.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's it, kind of going way back to when we first started talking about this stuff. I think when you're in that depressive position, when, when, when you're able to adopt a kind of a dialectical pessimism, one of the things that you're doing is you're being more sensitive to the ghosts and specters that yeah. kind of haunt you, right? Yeah. Um, and when you slide back into, as, as everybody does, you know the paranoid schizoid position, when you're you're when the trauma in your own life becomes overwhelming, that seems to be what people do. It's definitely what I do, yep. right? You know, you, you oh, go yeah, back same, to that.
0: Same, yeah, same here.
1: And that's that's the thing that makes that that kind of like um, forecloses. It drowns out your the 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 voices of the the voices of the ghosts and specters that are trying to. Kind of tell you something that maybe is hard to hear, but important to hear in, in those moments. That's what I, what I think a lot about with the therapeutic processes is is um, how many people you know come in and they're working really hard to hold on to that paranoid schizoid way of looking at the world. They they want that. They don't want to abandon it. But there's there's these uh, there's so many ghosts in their lives right now. And it's getting harder and harder and harder to continue to drown them out by just kind of like doubling down their libidinal investment into you know some form of of an identity um, that divides the world up into good and bad, ethical and unethical, um, et cetera, right? And and they're there. I think a lot of times they come into therapy thinking that the therapeutic process will actually help them quiet the ghosts. Where Mm -hmm. what, what? I'm trying to do is, is say like, you should listen to that. You know, that's the, those, those ghosts have something to say. And when you're able to hear whatever it is, um, you won't need to invest all of this massive amount of, uh, emotional capital kind of like into, yeah. uh, making sure that you defend yourself from whatever message they're sending. Uh, and, and that's something that, that, you know, from, from a therapeutic perspective, some people are down for that. And there's a lot of people who are like, I, I am not going to buy that product, mm-hmm. you know, no way I'm going to go. If you yeah. got a recommendation for somebody who will give me something else and I'll say, yeah, I, I do actually. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it happens all the time that way, which is kind of wild to me to think about it, that that's, I don't know. I, I, it, it, I tend to, um, one of the ways that I tend to split I think is, is with therapy, and with psychoanalysis in particular, uh, I think I tend to look at that as like an all good object, you know, that can only mm-hmm. do good things. And, and um, I don't want to sully it by looking at it as like an economic transaction, for example, mm-hmm. you know, even that's though true. it is. Yeah. And um, uh, that's one of those things that I think is really important for me to, to do. You know what I mean? It, it it's It's like to go like, oh, I am engaging in this like very transactional kind of a thing. And it's more than that, but it's also an economical transaction. And so it is sullied. And I don't know. I could rant on about that for a while, but I feel like I would just kind of like spin off into some weird direction and stuff. <laughs> so I'm going to stop.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, you know, the the phrase that, that sort of is coming to mind to me is how, you know, as a sort of a holdover, speaking of a ghost, maybe that haunts us in terms of political work, is sort of the ghost of like second wave feminism, whenever we talk about the personal is the political, mm. you know, and I've been thinking a lot about this, how to me, whenever I try to understand what do, what do I think that word means, or like that phrase means, how do I understand that? I think that, you know, the idea that that just means that certain aspects of your personal life, like have political implications they are affected by politics. And there's this, you know, there's this uh, coherence between the two. I've thought about this a lot, how I think that whenever we, we hear that phrase today, you know, the, the, the sort of ghost of that that I think haunts us is, you know, a very important point still to this day that, you know, personal issues of like the body and like reproductive health and like gender and like, you know, that these things have like political implications. But I think that one of the things that doesn't sort of get thought about enough is how these larger political structures and processes, like not only impact, but like actively shape the experiences that we have on the personal level. And this is one of the things that is maybe, this is where Foucault's ghost haunts me in a really productive way, I think, is to understand that, yeah, your experience of your life and how you interact with other people, like these are the things that are profoundly shaped by political processes and institutions and histories and structures. And so, you know, for me, why I think this, this whole, you know, I never would have predicted this, but in some ways, like being a therapist, I think has helped me be a better like political subject because in some ways it helps me understand how these processes are connected to these larger political structures and histories and institutions and so you know for me whenever we talk about this and why i was really excited for us to talk is because having a sort of therapeutic practice i think gives you an insight into these larger political uh political Developments or like histories that I I just don't think you're going to see otherwise, or they're so easy to obscure or to miss, or not even to have insight into. Like these are aspects of how these things are playing out and developing in us as individuals, and and they're profoundly collective. And maybe that's kind of what I'm trying to get at is that you know there is never the individual that walks into engaging with politics. It's always sort of the other. It's always like the the collective that defines. What it is to experience yourself as an individual, and to me, I think that that's that's something that the therapeutic process, to me, has I think helped me understand that in a way that I don't think you would I would never have seen otherwise. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe that's that's just a a yeah. vague a vague musing on me about this whole relationship between therapy and politics. I guess.
1: So that 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 phrase that you brought up earlier, right? Like that the personal is political. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've I've certainly heard that a lot. There was something, and I I wish I could remember when and where I heard this. Um, It was an interview with Jacqueline Rose. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, yes, the personal is political. But the weird thing is, is that the political is also personal, of course, right? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, That it isn't a one way street there. And that our largest kind of like social problems our our biggest political issues that we're really grappling with on on a, a meaningful and significant way, really are just our personal problems blown out on a much larger scale. You know, mm-hmm. and our and our personal problems, likewise, are, of course, like our, our public, like our, our social issues kind of brought down into the very personal scale. Um, you know, so like if if there's a person who individually has a really hard time um, engaging in, in a productive pessimism, right, and that's happening in their personal life, they can't do that. That's something that that creates too much anxiety or sadness in them. Um, we're going to see that play out if, uh, if enough individuals are experiencing that in their personal life. That is going to, I think, translate into um, fascism or, or some variation of fascism, right? That's where I, I see that going. Likewise, if people are in a fascist society, it seems very likely that they will have their capacity to engage in a productive pessimism before closed, right? Like mm-hmm. these things are, are intellectually linked. There's no way... To consider one without considering the other, you you the the personal is political, um, and the political is personal. There the, that almost makes me think too of the the topic from however long ago, uh, about when uh, you're looking at things from a very materialist lens, right? Uh, that the idealistic lens, the 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 ghost of Hegel, you know, and like kind of come dialectics or, or, or something <laughs> like that, right? you know come, yeah. comes jumping in there and and all that uh and likewise if you're you know you, you've spent your your sunday reading the phenomenology of spirit at a certain point like the you know what the material conditions start start to haunt you're right like yeah these things they can't be separated they are together and and um to go too far into one you're gonna find yourself on the other side of the mobius strip you know um Mm. there's just that's how it's going to be there's no way around it at all ever uh because these things are so structurally linked
0: yeah i mean there's almost this way that maybe one of the things that presents such a huge challenge in a lot of maybe our personal lives but also our our political work and organizing is the fact that we only we only see one side of the dialectic at any given time and it's precisely that which which sort of limits us in a lot of ways um you know, I, there's this great line uh, from Sheikh Guevara where it basically says, it's not my fault if reality is Marxist, um, <laughs> and, you know, and it's like it's this is one of those moments where it's just sort of like, listen, it's not my fault if reality is dialectical. OK, uh, so, you know, I'm going to always hopefully be pushing myself to to sort of approach it in that way. And, you know, to the to the woe of maybe anyone who ever encounters me, they're also going to hear me push them to try to be that way, too, because. To me, that's the only way to 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 move, I guess, to to sort of not find yourself in some sort of stasis or like repetition, maybe.
1: Yeah. You know, so here's the thing. This is maybe a a bit of a abrupt gear change, but I had it written down. I really wanted to ask you about this. Um, So one of the things that I'm noticing in there's there's a lot of really good left leaning podcasts like yours, you know, the Regrettable Century you mentioned um, uh, I listen to What's Left. Uh, I have a weird relationship with that one. I like it sometimes, and other times I'm a little bit like not so sure about it. But there's there's mm-hmm. some really great stuff being produced, I think. Um, but uh, the other one I was going to mention was Horror Vanguard. That that's a really fun one. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, there's this. It, it seems like it's fashionable right now to be linking um left politics and horror. Right? You know, uh, Zizek does this. Uh, a lot of people are, are doing this all over. The lit crit guy does this. Um, and I just kind of wanted to to open, like toss that over to you. What do you, I mean, <laughs> it, what is, why? Because it didn't seem like this was always the case. Like this seemed, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was always the case and I just wasn't tuned into it. But it seems like this is the thing right now is to to talk about capitalism as a vampire or the alien from aliens or the thing from John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, there, there's, and it seems like people are really, uh, and it's it's cool that they're doing this, but um, like, why now? Like, why is it that now, all of a sudden, it seems like there's this huge amount of explaining capital through monster movies and horror.
0: God, I feel so called out right now because I definitely have given way to that impulse myself. Me too. Uh,
1: like, yeah. I, I'm definitely doing it.
0: Yeah. Um. Well, I will say that in terms of you know, the, the history of this, I think goes back to Marx, right. And, and, in, in capital and the discussion of capital and like capitalists as these vampires and like, so I think there's this, you know, what, what we could call like the Gothic strain mm-hmm. has always been there. Um, you know, I know that regrettable century has talked a good bit about, and, and also at salvage, uh, salvage magazine and China, Mieville, and they talk a lot about the Gothic strain and Marxism. And I'm very, very sympathetic to this in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of like why now uh i don't know i mean maybe there's a very material reason for this maybe it's 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 a natural sort of uh trying to to rejuvenate or repair this strain within marxist thought precisely because soviet orthodox marxism has died and has left the world stage and maybe mm-hmm. it's created space to re reexamine examine or try to rejuvenate some forms of of marxism that maybe were very you know uh like either under the radar or were, you know, like suppressed in very different ways or people were terrified to engage with Marxism in a particular way. Um, I also wonder if like part of it is the, the, the increasing way that the Academy and, and like cultural studies has and critical theory, quote unquote, writ large has adopted Marxism or Marxism has found its home and a lot of approaches to theory that do focus a lot on cultural production um, you know I, know, I mean, it's interesting. I'm wondering if maybe there are some writings of the Frankfurt School that did talk about, you know, Hollywood and horror and cultural production. But I have a feeling if if they did talk about it, it was always going to be just ruthless and scathing. I don't think they would have looked at it as like a, uh, a sort of a yeah. generative kind of way to think about capital. I, I will tell you that the way that I've, I sort of found my way to wanting to think about capitalism in this way And and I also think it's actually um, it's pretty generative for thinking about things like patriarchy and even like white supremacy as well. Yeah, Um, is actually through a reading of psychoanalysis, but also uh, some different ways that linguistics and focuses on like bodily experience and the experience of metaphor Mm. through uh, like. There's a writer named Mark Johnson that I was really influenced by for a while, and he also wrote a little bit with this guy named George Lukoff, who has written some like pop political psych books since then that I'm not like a big fan of, but some of their early work was this discussion about the relationship between metaphor and lived bodily experience and Mm -hmm. political, uh, political experience. So for me, I think what, what I, what drew me to it was this idea that metaphor is a really, really profoundly and powerful way to, to describe very abstract uh, disembodied ethereal like processes that have material effects but are very, very difficult to grasp without some sort of like mediating
1: mm-hmm. uh
0: sort of word or concept. And I yeah, know that, yeah. you know, some, some sort of like, some theorists think that the metaphor is something that is like completely died because reality itself is thoroughly penetrated by capital and, and spectacle like John Baudrillard and people like that. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's something powerful about it. And to me, that's, that's where I think, it's a really productive and really useful thing. I also think that, you know, for even for for Lacan, right, one of the the first introduction I had to Lacan that actually made any sense to me whatsoever was Lacan, uh, Zizek's book Looking Awry and describing Lacan through film and, and uh, Hitchcock and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if maybe part of it is that there's this rejuvenated interest in Marxism or like socialism or something that's anti-capitalist and we're all turning towards the things that we know work pretty well to introduce people to the ways that it functions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I don't know. Maybe that it's that. I mean, how many people like who run these podcasts and like rely on this? You know, are very much consciously adopting like a gothic Marxist strain. I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, I think I sort of did it and then realized after the fact like, oh shit, that's what I was doing. Okay, well that sounds great. Let's do that.
1: Yeah, I, that, that was my experience, too. It was one of those experiences of um, afterwardness, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that mm. that it's uh, a thing happens, and before it happens, obviously, like, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. And as it's happening, it's happening, so I don't have time to kind of mm. uh, say, oh, that's what that is. Um, but then after it's happened, it'll be like, oh, look at that. I did that thing. Uh, yeah. You know, and that and happens regularly. I just thought it was really weird. Um, not really weird. That's not the right way to put it. Um, uh, I, I was always, I guess I'm curious about like why horror, you know, and why not science fiction? Why not fantasy? Why not one of the other uh, genres that that exists? It's the, that's the one that people are going for. And I think it's kind of interesting that there's a lot of um, likening capital to a monster right now. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's happening. And, and that when I talk about this with other people, and I, I mean, this could be, um, you know, people who are, are into this sort of stuff, who, who have done the, the work of learning about it, reading about it, thinking about it and people who haven't, right. Um, I was at a, a Halloween party last night and I was uh, talking to this guy who's a music teacher at a middle school and he has not read Marx. He is not, he's not a Marxist. You know, he's a, a what I, I kind of probably, I don't know him super well. I just met him, but he seems like a dude who's pretty much like a neoliberal, uh, mm-hmm. is what it kind of comes down to. Right. Um, And somehow we ended up talking about the latest season of Stranger Things and the mall and the monster and how like, you know, the mall is also like a representation because it's like getting itself into everything and things are like the stores are dying, like the pumpkins and and this thing spun off. And then other people were coming into the conversation too. And I don't know what all of their deals were, but they were into that, right? Mm -hmm. Like that drew people into the conversation. And um, so here I am talking with this very neoliberal person who's very willing in this conversation to see capital as this monstrous thing, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know, but I would have been able to arrive at that same spot with him had I not uh, gotten there through this uh, kind of contemporary culture, common reference point of Stranger Things, you know, and and, and horror in general, then uh, is kind of what it came down to. So it seems like it's a really effective thing um but it does strike me as also just like super interesting. Uh the other thing that's coming up a lot right now is the Joker movie and people talking a lot about about that. Yeah, we
0: just did an episode on it too. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Okay, yeah. So it's a, I mean, I haven't seen it. Um I I might go see it later today, it depends. I, I'm not sure. Uh my my wife is actually out of town right now with our our mm-hmm. baby, so that that makes I actually have this this time, but um uh, this is such a weird tangent, but like whenever i I think about doing that, I feel guilty for like not doing something else which is like quote unquote more productive, <laughs> you know
0: yeah, well, I will say I think that for better or for worse, joker is a very productive thing to encounter uh, again you know if i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on our episode on it i mean my my take on it is that I think it's anti capitalist without being like socialist or communist in any sort of way okay um but i but I do think I think there 's an in some ways it's surprising how much is there. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I will be very interested to hear your thoughts if you check it out. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about in terms of like horror and its relation to capital and why not drama, why not sci-fi? You know, it's funny that I think that the relationship between horror and capitalism now and our way of understanding it is like fundamentally like the inverse of what it was for Marx. You know, because I think that like whenever... The the early descriptions like in capital, in by uh, conditions of the working class in England, by Engels, you know, the the sort of generative kind of uh relationship between these figures of horror and capital was the sheer horror of the conditions of factories. And and to me, I think that's kind of what everyone shared is is the experience, the material experience of working in these conditions that are absolutely horrifying and horrific and violent and terrifying. And dangerous. And it's almost as if, like, the, the figure of the vampire is, is sort of a, a, a kind of a very minimal, or, or almost like it doesn't. What's more important is the fact that the conditions of material work were shared more commonly. And the mm. vampire, like, made sense for that. But at the end of the day, the conditions that were shared were material and they were involving labor for for a lot of people for most people i think the difference today is the inverse of it is that we don't feel that we share those conditions of work and labor in the same way but what we do share is we do share experiences of mass commodified culture together and i wonder if that's kind of the difference is that mm. it's almost like the starting point is the is the image of the vampire as 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 opposed to Marx and Engels, which was the starting point was the conditions of labor and the vampire just became an interesting way to solidify an understanding of that. But it's interesting that you could talk with someone who might be maybe what identify as being much more like liberal or neoliberal or centrist or whatever. But if they resonate with that discussion of capital as the monster and the mall and stranger things, that's part of, it's like, what bridges that gap? And to me, it's, it has to be the fact that the culture is what's shared and not necessarily the experience of labor that the mm. initial gothic strain kind of arose out of maybe.
1: Oh, that makes a lot of sense actually to think of it that way. Yeah. Um, huh. That's great. You should turn that into, you should write that down and, and like blow it out into to something, an essay, a May- book or, or whatever. Maybe,
0: maybe whenever I have time, I actually have been thinking I want to like, take more sporadic sort of breaks from the podcast and just try to solidify some of the things we talk about in writing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, maybe at some point over the holidays I'll do that. Yeah.
1: yeah. For whatever this might be worth, you know um, one of the other things I do in addition to this podcast is I do an email newsletter. Um, and that the reason that I do that is for what you just described, right? Like I've found it to be useful for me to once a week um, uh, sit down and have something that I'm thinking about or kind of like actively mm-hmm. sort of chewing on working through um, and, and to to engage in that process of rendering it in you know, the symbolic by writing it down in, yeah. in a way that that uh, when I read it it makes it read it back to myself. I go, yeah, okay yeah, that that makes enough sense that I would send that out to however many people um, and and that's been really really, really useful. Uh, I know that, that that writing is not something that I would probably turn into like a a published piece or anything like that, but uh, it's a great way to to really, I don't know, like codify some certain thoughts in your own mind. And, and it's challenging, like doing it on a weekly basis has been been really hard, but also really productive.
0: Yeah, I need to start doing something like that. I started a blog around the same time I started doing the show. And I remember the first couple of pieces that I wrote were were very personal. They had a lot to do with trying to theoretically grapple with certain uh, deadlocks or gaps or challenges I was experiencing in organizing work. And I wrote the first piece and I sent it to a couple of friends to read over. And whenever I sent the piece, it was, it was essentially like a 45-page essay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was, it was just like, this is, they're like, this isn't a blog. like You don't write like this on a blog. I'm like, yeah, I know. I realize this is a terrible way to approach writing because I'm never going to get any writing done or it's like, I'll write two pieces a year. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But I, yeah, I feel like I want to push myself to do something much more short and, and digestible and more productive. Yeah, um, and not useful. in like that I just need to produce shit, but like, you know, but I think it would be helpful to not have huge gaps because yeah, to me, the podcast and the writing are, are very much two aspects of the same thing. And, and I need to do a lot more of the other ones. So
1: yeah, it's like the, the phonocentrism versus yeah. the, yeah. You know, I, I like talking a lot, but it, the, the, there's something, um, about writing, I think that is uh in a sense alienating like you know it, it it alienates me from others in a certain way uh as i do it but mm. the the product uh is that it actually creates more of a, a lack of alienation it, yeah. it, once you once you put it out there so it's weird it's like you got to endure a little bit of alienation in order to not have a whole bunch of it i i think and writing is definitely a pretty good way to do that
0: yeah that actually makes a lot of sense whenever i think about the last uh two pieces I wrote that were much more long and form but yeah I, I think that app describes the process of going through that beautifully actually
1: mm-hmm. so here's the, the the last thing i wanted to to ask you yeah. about here before we we because i we've been talking for almost two hours here um uh this is i want to get this question asked the right way i and i can't just ask it. i think i have to preface it so i'll do that um, yeah, go for it. One of the things that I struggle with, I, I think a lot, one, this is one of the things that kind of haunts me for sure, um, is I take a look at what I do, right, on a day to day basis. So I, I teach at a university, which is a, a private university, right, but it's a non for profit entity, mm-hmm. um, part of the non for profit industrial complex that you alluded to earlier. Um, I'm part of a group psychotherapy practice. And the reason that I chose to be a part of this group. Is that baked into their their mission is the idea that nobody ever gets turned away. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I I see people for very little money, and, and I'm allowed to do that. And the thing then is that there's a, a subsidy program. So like if you came to me and you didn't have a lot of money, say you could only afford um, twenty dollars for a session, um, we could do that, you know. And then I the the so you'd pay twenty dollars, and then um, the group would uh, give me more money on top of that to compensate me for the time that I give. Um, so that I would make enough to continue to do this. And as long mm-hmm. as everybody who works there is responsible with who we do this with and who we don't, and as long as the patients are responsible and honest, you know, about like what they can actually afford it, it works and it works really good. And I, I love that about yeah. this, right? Yeah, that's cool. And this is one of my, my attempts to, to engage in a sort of like anti-capitalist resistance in a, in a meaningful mm-hmm. and material way and all that, right? So I, I do that um despite all of that right i have this question that that haunts me and it haunts me i can't i I don't think i can say it haunts me on a daily basis but i can definitely say it haunts me on a weekly basis several times a week usually and that is the question of am i the proletariat right
0: (laughs) this is my favorite question this is something that me and comrade alex talk about every episode that we've done this is probably the core question that we come back to Mm -hmm. what's your answer
1: so it, it depends, I think, on when I'm asking myself that question and kind of like what's going on, <laughs> sure. you know, I, uh, but um, right lately, I would say more consistently, um, I have a desire to say yes, but I, what I'm doing is kind of engaging in a, in a pessimism and saying no. Um, uh, it, but I'm, I'm not sure about this, right? Like, uh, I, I like when people talk about the working classes, plural, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, my engagement with linen has shown me this too that that like there if you just throw it to the to the people who are you know working in uh factories or whatever the modern day equivalent of working in the factory is right um and there isn't you know uh people who are you know well versed in in theory and and stuff like that what what does that look like i mean it's it's what does it mean to be working class can you be a theory junkie you know what I mean? Who spends uh, a lot of time in a comfortable environment reading books and still call yourself the working class? Um, and like I said, I really want to say yes, maybe if you you also do kind of like do some things to kind of change the material conditions of the working classes plural. Um, then then maybe. Um, but then I ask myself a lot of times, like, but am I really doing? Am I doing this? Is the am I doing it enough thing? You know, yeah. the mm-hmm. the pessimism that I I kind of tried to talk about earlier, and the answer is like probably not. You know. Um, and so it's weird this is like a, a an ongoing dialectic in my own mind I, I I think right where there there's there are points where I feel comfortable i guess identifying myself that way like i am a I'm a social worker I, mm-hmm. I am a member of the working classes um et cetera and there are other times where I feel like you know I don't know but I have the same ability to lay claim to that as I would like to um uh, if I'm being honest, maybe that's not something that really describes the way that, that I live my life at, at this particular moment, you know? So it's, it's an open question, you know what I mean? Is, is where it's at right now. Um, but lately the answer has been more on the no than the yes. Um, and there's been times where it's been more on the yes than the no. And maybe I'll return to that. I don't I don't really yeah. don't
0: know. Well, this is my favorite question to grapple with right now. Um, I guess, God, where to even start? Uh, you know, a little bit about my background. I mean, I, whenever people ask me, oh, like, where do you come from? Or, you know, I sometimes joke, I don't even bother giving people my resume anymore for whether I should be like pro or like, you know, a revolutionary or whatever the hell those words mean anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I do, I come from a very small town, very working class, uh, you know, my mom and, and my, my family still are. I mean, they're all like whatever we would call the working classes now. I mean, that's, that's what they are. Um, you know, for me, I guess I, I've tried to answer this question in like a handful of different ways. And I think this is also something that other large historic, uh, historians and theorists of, of capital and, and leftist and Marxist sort of historians have tried to answer this too. I would say that, you know, is it, is it consciousness that makes someone a proletarian or not? I mean, I've been involved in revolutionary sorts of uh, groups that think that absolutely that is what dictates whether you're actually a proletarian or not. I mean, this is some, you know, there's a historical discussion around this in terms of the fact that if you look historically at who have been the sort of the the generators of revolutionary movements, more often than not, they had, you know, fairly petty bourgeois intellectual backgrounds. You know, they came from intellectual families who had money. Um, so, you know, I think what you're already kind of forced to reckon with is that well if i'm not if i'm not the working classes then how do we understand the fact that the people who seem to be at the head of these revolutionary working class movements that actually brought about real conditions and challenges to capitalism also like weren't classified as the working classes Mm -hmm. you know and then we get into the whole question of oh is it the intellectuals and like the theorists and the the middle classes who have this, you know, party form that then leads the masses. I mean, there's so many thorny questions here, but a couple of other, I think key things to try to answer would be, you know, another, another, uh, answer for who is, who is working class and who's not is like, are you dependent on the wage fund for your work? So, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but even though I might be a social worker and some people would inherently classify that as being non-working class, I don't, exist in any sort of way based on like capital you know i don't oh i'm not a landlord i don't have any sort of money invested in any kind of stock market you know i mean shit for most of my life if i if i had more than twenty dollars in my bank account that wasn't accounted for by a bill or by debt i thought i was doing pretty damn good but there are challenges to this idea that oh if you're just um like being working class doesn't depend on how much money you make Right, it's your structural position. That's what's key. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so to me, whenever I look at my role right now, I would—I I, guess—I would say it this way. Well, in terms of consciousness, I definitely consider myself working class. Um, that's my background, and even though I'm in social work, I still think of myself as working class. And I think there's enough of a historical uh, case to be made that social workers if anything, occupy a weird liminal space between middle class and full-on working class, and it sort Mm -hmm. of goes back and forth at different times. But in terms of consciousness, I would say, okay, I feel definitely working class. Um, In terms of wages, I definitely feel working class. Some of my clients make more money than I do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, And then third, if I'm thinking structural position in the relations of capital and the relations of production, it's like, okay, well, I'm not working in a factory right now, Right. But the change in the conditions of work towards more intellectual and white-collar labor, you know, doesn't, to me, I think we can't really understand, like, the conditions of the working classes in the U.S. right now based on who works in a factory and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And and even the idea that, well, everyone who works white-collar work in the U.S. is not working class, but the working classes are now offshored into, like, India and, like, like Pakistan and like Vietnam and all these other, like, you know, sort of third world, this kind of perspectives. But I don't, I don't know how many people like talk about this right now, but a lot of like labor and jobs that are coming back to the U S they're taking those techniques that they use to exploit laborers and like sort of like in the, in the periphery or in third world countries. And now they're just bringing those back and exploiting U S workers even more with the exact technologies and disciplines that they've learned there. Mm -hmm. So to me, if if you're going to define working class based on structural position, I don't think I have yet. I have yet to encounter anyone who I think has a good answer on how you understand labor and work in the U S right now, as as like fitting into these old categories of working class or not that we still kind of I think, take on but don't really make a lot of sense to the concrete conditions now. So anyway, that's a long answer, but I've I, I've grappled with this a lot. And and that's the best answer that I've come up with is I think that if if it's two out of the three, I feel like I'm definitely working class. And if it's the third one that's structural, I would say I don't know. That one's I don't even have a good answer for that right now.
1: Yeah, that's wild. I know I, I, when you did your your episodes with with Alex and that, those those philosophy for militants, I think in the yeah. in the uh-huh. book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. those those ones, um, uh, those were a lot of fun to listen to. Like the, uh, those
0: were a lot of fun to record too. Yeah, yeah
1: it seemed like it for sure, and it, that came through. The 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 jouissance came through in the in the listening. Yeah. I, I can tell you that. <laughs> Um, That would be really fun if there's ever an opportunity to be in a room with you and him and talk about this question. I would I would absolutely love to do that.
0: We'll we'll make that happen. I think that definitely should happen. You know, Alex is like my uh my my little sort of uh Lacanian mascot at any given point. So I feel like it'd be a really fun time to have all three of us in a room together.
1: Yeah, no, I I it's weird. Like whenever I I uh, talk about this stuff, I don't know how long it will be before I slip into to some kind of diatribe about Lacan. But I didn't do that today, so that's a you know in a sense I'll take that as uh as, as a win. Um, I guess it could be looked at as a loss too, but I'm gonna take it well, as a win.
0: Well, maybe what we could think of it in, like, pure Zizekian fashion is the same way that whenever you would have, like, a Politburo meeting in Soviet Russia, that even if Stalin wasn't there, the empty chair of Stalin was always there. Like, Lacan, the empty chair for Lacan is still in the room. Oh, that today. is great. So, I'm trying to
1: imagine, like, like the, 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 the like, I think Lacan-Stalin thing is yeah. actually <laughs> really humorous. <laughs> oh, Wow. Uh, that There was something that you said, about, I, I can't remember what episode it was, I think it was, uh, you were talking about a hybrid you know, between uh, the discourse of the master and the discourse of the analyst. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was one of those things that, that I remember hearing that and afterwards being like, I need to stop this podcast and just like think about that for a minute because I think there's something really cool in that. And in the newsletter that I do, Complex Practice, that's one of the things which is in the draft uh, format right now is something about that thing.
0: Oh, really? Yeah,
1: yeah. That, I,
0: that might be from, we were talking about Badiou and whether we thought Badiou was placing himself in the, like, whether he was stepping into the discourse to the master of the discourse of the the analyst, I think. Anyway, that might be what it is or maybe something else, but.
1: Yeah, no, it's so it's wild to think about that, though, like, because um, uh, yeah, that's if I go down that path that'll go off into some weird direction. So maybe that's like like table that different time, different place. <laughs> that's to, another episode maybe. Yeah, to really, to really get into that. Um anyways, that's what I had to say. So I I uh I wanted to to wrap up here. Um uh the, the one thing I want to do to wrap up is say thanks for taking the time to sit down today and talk about the stuff. It was really enjoyable for me and I want to say to anybody who's listening to this through through my podcast feed through the from 78 feed that you have an amazing podcast called Red Library, and mm-hmm. uh, I listen to it. It's one of the podcasts that I look forward to a lot. Uh, so anytime I see a new episode, it's it's like, okay, great. I sometimes stop listening to something else, but I can listen to that. Uh, so I would like it if other people uh, subscribed to that. You have a Patreon page I know. I support you uh, through that Patreon page. So when I, I say that other yeah, people should, very much. Yeah. Should, should do it, like I'm, I'm not telling you to do something that I don't myself do. Um <laughs> And, and, and maybe that matters, maybe it doesn't, but that's, it matters to me. So I just wanted to say again, thanks and encourage everybody to check out the really cool work that you're doing.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I'll just say thanks a ton for, for reaching out and making this happen and, and inviting me on the show. And I know that you're going to be on an episode of ours very soon. Um, you know, it's funny, I guess the, the thing I'll leave you with is that, you know, in some way, whenever I started, red library, as I mentioned at the beginning, it was sort of a way to just be able to talk about the shit that I'm interested in and think yeah. through this stuff and think through it and talk to it with other people. And, you know, maybe on some sort of level, it was uh, it was some just throwing a, throwing a, a, a net out into the, the digital ether and just saying, Hey, like if we're doing this, let's find the others, right? Who else out there loves this stuff and wants to talk about it and we can connect with. And, you know, maybe this is exactly it. It sort of was successful because at the end of the day, you know, we're sitting here having this discussion in two different parts of the country because of leftist podcasting, of all things. So there you go.
1: Yeah, for sure. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to hit stop here and.